Amen. Thank you, guys. Thanks, brother. Well, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Nathan Bechtold. I'm the uh, youth minister here at Riverview Baptist Church. If I don't know you, uh, or if you don't know me, that's uh, it's probably enough for now at least. Um, uh, I am uh, excited to share God's word with you this morning. I'm, I'm doing so because our pastor, uh, Spencer Plumley is actually in Israel right now, finishing up a trip he got to take over there. And uh, I am living vicariously through him as he continues to share photos and, and videos on Facebook, if any of you have been following him. You know, sometimes when somebody comes back from a trip and they say, look at these pictures, and you have to pretend to be interested, you know, for you can handle it for like three minutes maybe, and then you kind of have to move on. Not so with this one, at least for me. I'm, I love every single thing that he shares because I got to travel there in my senior year of college and uh, so many of the places that he's visiting, I have such sweet, special memories of for him to walk in the places where Jesus walked um, and, and uh, spend time on Mount Carmel and these different places that we read about, read about in the scriptures and to realize that those are real places. In fact, I think the last time I taught, I actually showed some pictures of my, of my trip up on the, uh, on the slideshow. I'm, I remember, I'm sure all of you remember that and wrote it in your journals and everything. So... Um, uh, but I'm excited for him to be back, and I'm sure we'll hear more from him about that trip and what God uh, taught him and, and moved in his life there. So this morning, we are going to read from Colossians chapter 3. So if you would open there and stand with me as we read from the Word of the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, I guess I should tell you the verses, right? Colossians 3, 5 through 17 is what we're reading this morning. Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. 
We thank you for what you want to say to us through it. Help us to hear you. In spite of me or anything else, we ask that uh, you would help us to hear you and, and to be changed. We thank you for that. We know that you want to grow us and change us, and so we ask you to. Through Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be seated. So I have uh, some chickens, and um, I get some applause. (laughs) Yeah, I'm done. Actually, thanks. Um, I have some chickens, and uh, I—it's fun, you know, raising chickens. they lay eggs for you and use them for pancakes and, and things. And, uh, but there's this thing, you know, I mean, there's kind of been this cultural thing in the last five or ten years or whatever, kind of the grow your own, raise your own, all this kind of thing. And, and, and that's kind of what my family likes to do on some level. I'm a horrible gardener. Just, I mean, I, I thought I was a good gardener until I, maybe it's Missouri soil, Ozark soil. I don't know. It's, it's miserable. Yeah, Christine's giving me a sympathetic laugh over here. Um, but uh, chickens, um, you, get, you, you have this idea like, oh, chickens, and we'll like, save money on eggs, and we'll sell the extra eggs, right, and all these things. And occasionally that does happen with like a very small sliver of the people who get chickens, I've decided. Uh, the rest of them uh, spend about, you know, three to $500 on this chicken coop that like is bigger than your house, you know, or like fancier, like the paint job is perfect. And have you seen these? I mean, I'll admit I get a little bit envious of them because my poor chickens live in this really nasty shed thing, and uh, they don't seem to mind. I don't think they actually care if it's not painted beautifully and stuff, but, um, and so you spend money on that, and then you, and then you spend money on the chickens, and then the, and the feed, and, you know, all these various things, and you realize, I think when I'm about 95 years old, I'm going to start saving money on eggs, Um, and, uh, so you realize that you're raising chickens for some other reason other than to actually you know, save money on eggs you can dip for $2 at the, <laughs> the grocery store. But I've learned that uh, chickens, are, are, they don't primarily exist for uh, their owner to collect their eggs. That's not really why they exist on the earth. They exist for several other things first, at least, and the eggs kind of comes last at the bottom of the, of the list. And the first thing is actually to destroy everything that you plant around the property. Um, uh, whether that's, you know, your little lettuce bed that you've planted, you've, we're going to have our own salad. It's the same as the chickens, actually. It's the whole thing. And, and they go in and they, they think that it's for them and they, and they clear it all out for you very nicely. And then um, they leave little special gifts all over the yard for you to track into the carpet inside uh, that is, is really just vile. It's It's horrible. And uh, I've also discovered uh, that chickens then exist next uh, largely to feed the local predator population. Um, And I'm starting to think that this whole local food, raise your own, grow your own thing was actually a grand propaganda campaign created by um, a coalition of foxes and raccoons. which makes me think maybe they're smarter than we are because I keep buying baby chicks and they keep like growing up and then vanishing and I find some feathers or something, you know, and, and, um, and I think chickens actually largely exist to feed raccoons, of which I think we have an abundance at Lake of the Ozarks. I don't know if you've noticed this. Um, but the thing about raccoons is that they are, they're awful cute. I mean, from a distance, you know. They're cute and... And, and, and so you hate the fact that 
there's only one penalty for killing my chickens, and it's the death penalty. I'm just here to tell you right now. I'm not going to mince words. The, de- the penalty for killing my chickens, it's life for a life, or life for like 10 lives once I finally catch the raccoon. And um, it's the death penalty for, for, this, for this raccoon. But I had a friend one morning call me, and uh, he had you know, raccoon problems occasionally, and he'd set a live trap. And he called me, I think it was a Sunday morning, and he said, so I, I caught a baby raccoon last night. And I, I was wondering if you wanted to keep it and raise it as a pet. <laughs> and I kind of thought about it. Sorry, honey. I did. I thought about it just for a minute. I was like, oh, it would be so cute, right? Because they're just, they're, you know, they're so, they look fun. And I've heard of people doing this. In fact, after the last mess, my early service Message. Somebody came up to me and they said, my mom had a raccoon and it rode in the front seat of the car. Everybody else had to ride in the back and it was a pet raccoon and it rode in the front and they put clothes on it and took it, took it all over town and is, this is a real thing. Um, and so I thought that would be a blast. I, had to, I told him no because uh, my, uh, you know, my, my better sense got a hold of me and I realized that would just be a horrible idea all around. But I was, as I was... <laughs> I'm going somewhere with this, by the way, in case you were wondering. Uh, as, as I was preparing uh, to, to teach this morning, I was thinking about that story and, and thought, what if I had told him yes? Yeah, I'll take it. And I get the baby raccoon and we raise it, you know, not in the house or whatever, but or maybe a little bit in the house. And, and I give him some cliche name like Bandit, you know, or something. And we feed him cat food and teach him little tricks, right, and all these things. And but maybe I make him sleep outside, you know, in his little pen or something. I don't know. But I think most people that raise him keep him inside. But, and, and eventually I feel bad for Bandit. And I think um, he needs a shelter outside. It's cold in the winter, you know. And, uh, and so I think he's a good friend. He's been loyal to me. Uh, I'm going to let him sleep in the chicken coop. I just get the sense that Bandit would no longer be loyal to me once I put him in the chicken coop. I think that he, maybe not the first night, but in the near future would, would sort of look over next to him and go, you know, I'm a little tired of cat food, and I think I need to supplement this diet with a little poultry. And so as I thought about that, I, I realized if that happened, and I walked out the next morning, and, and my, my chicken coop was just in shambles, and there was no chickens left, and, um, I, and Bandit was looking very fat and, and plump, I would only have myself to blame for that, right? Because I put a destroyer in the place where he can destroy. I I welcomed him into my hen house to wreak havoc on my hens. And it would just be my fault for doing something so ridiculous. You don't keep a destroyer around, right? And maybe some of you are imagining this, you know, like problematic pet that you have right now. And I'm not going to give you any personal advice on that. I'm just saying generally, we don't like to keep destroyers around, right? We don't like to keep things around that wreck everything. So we'll, we'll kind of circle back to that illustration in a minute here. But uh, if, you, if you look at me for, uh, turn over with me to Deuteronomy, because um, the raccoon thing is going to make sense in a minute. It will. But we're going to look at Deuteronomy first. Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is a great book. I think it's underrated, actually. I, uh, 
Because it kind of gets put next to Leviticus and Numbers, and they're great books too, but they're harder to read. Let's just be honest, they're hard to read, right? There's a lot of cubits in them, and sort of all sorts of you know, sacrifices and mixed wool and all, these, all these things where it's a little, you know, it's not storytelling, right? So it's a little harder to work through those books. But Deuteronomy is great because in Deuteronomy, the Israelites are about to go into the promised land, and... Um, God has promised them this, this land flowing with milk and honey, right? He, he tells them um, it's going to be great and all their needs are going to be provided for and uh, they, they don't believe him and so they have to wander in the desert for 40 years and, and meanwhile Moses disobeys God and so Moses doesn't get to go in the promised land and in Deuteronomy, Moses knows that it's about time to go. They're about to go into the promised land, Moses is about to die. And so he gives them Deuteronomy, which... which uh, literally means like second law. It's the second giving of the law. And he spends some time going over with them the history of where God has taken them, what God has done for them so far, and also how horrible they are and how much they forget all the time what God has done for them and rebel at every turn. So Deuteronomy 7 Moses gives them some really specific instructions because there's some people groups living in the land that is the promised land and God is going to lead them into this land and he gives them some specific instructions here. In in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would, turn away your God, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So Moses says, listen, you're going to go into this place and you need to wipe out everybody that is there. We're talking like total destruction, right? We're talking... Kill them all, right? I mean, this is serious stuff, the command that God is giving the Israelites here. It's a little, sometimes, a little hard to stomach, right? A little hard for us to go, whoa. I mean, come on, make a little peace treaty with them or something, right? You know, be nice, right? But no, God says, no, you devote them to destruction. You wipe them off the face of the earth. If you think that instruction is a little bit harsh, look ahead to chapter 9. In Deuteronomy, verse 5, or jot it down and I'll read it to you, either way. In chapter, five, in chapter 9, verse 5, he says, Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. 
and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So what Moses explains is, listen, it's not because you're so great that God is giving you this, right? Because you guys, again, you rebel at every turn. He says, these people are wicked people. They have, they have practiced things that are abhorrent to God. Right? Human sacrifice and worship of idols, all of these practices that are deserving of just a single penalty, right? Death. And I think sometimes we forget as we read, uh, at least I know I can, as, as we read the Bible, we can forget that history is happening alongside of it, right? Like we're reading about the Israelites, but there's other things happening in the world, during this time. And so, and so when he lists off these tribes, it helps me to, to think about the fact that these are, or not tribes, these people groups. It helps me remember that these people groups are large. He says they're bigger than you are. They're more powerful than you are. And they have a whole system, a whole culture that's devoted around, um, or that, that's centered on idolatry and on abhorrent sacrifices and on things that are utterly evil. And God says, that's why. That's why I'm saying show no mercy. Not because I'm mean or something, right? But because these people are evil. Destroy them. So what can we take from that? From that story? As we look at Colossians 3. As we think about Paul telling us to put to death what is earthly in us. I think three things. One, the good that God offers us can be spoiled by sin. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying as a believer, sin can still creep in and undermine what God is doing in our lives. So the second thing is that we have to put that to death. This is what Paul tells us in Colossians 3. He says, death sentence for that stuff. You don't show it, you know, you don't give it safe harbor or safe haven. You don't give it quarter. You don't feed it and nourish it and keep it around. You give it the death sentence. It is evil and it is undermining everything I'm doing. You destroy it. Thirdly, that requires actual action. Real action. It doesn't mean we just sit around and imagine what it might be like or that we go, oh, well, you know, one day I'll wake up and a magic wand will have been waved over me and, and uh, I won't have this, uh, you know, all that is earthly within me will have been uh, it will magically vanished. That's not how it works either. It takes us taking real steps. Paul tells Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose, purpose of godliness, right? That means that we have to do things. We have to, we have to take specific actions in areas where we're struggling in our lives to eradicate that from our lives, to remove these things that are barriers to the promised land that God is, is delivering us to in our own hearts and lives, right? So you see the parallel here? Look back at Colossians 3 just for a second. In case you were wondering, why do I have to do this? Paul answers that. In Colossians 3, uh, verse 3, actually, a little bit before where we read, he says, For you have died, 
And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Did you know that? If you went to life groups this morning, actually, you know that now, right? I think most of our life groups talked about Romans 6. I didn't realize that, actually, when I was preparing this. But um, Romans 6, Paul explains to us explicitly, you died when you, when you stepped into life with Christ, when you became a Christian, when you turned your life over to Jesus, you died. Christ's death extends through the ages, and you participate in it. And we, we paint that picture when we go up here and we get baptized. We paint that picture, right? Because we, we, In fact, the person who baptizes you says it. Is that you're buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. This is a literal thing. It's not just a... Um, example or, or an allegory or uh, you know something that helps to imagine you as a Christian actually died with Christ. Now, why does that matter? Well, Paul explains in Romans six that it means that you're not a slave to sin anymore because sin and, and death are inextricably connected to each other in the Scripture. Right? You remember in Genesis. When God gives Adam and Eve one rule, right? They just had one rule to follow. And they can't do it. And they break the rule. And he says, okay, death is, is the sentence for that rule, right? And that doesn't mean that he strikes them down on the spot. What it means is that death enters the world, right? And everything is twisted and broken and ruined as a result of man's rebellion. So death and sin... Um, are inextricably connected with each other. And so when Christ comes and he beats death, right, because he dies, and then on the third day he, 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 raises, he raises from the dead. And so when he defeats death, he also defeats sin, so that sin no longer has power over us. Now, that's really good news. But, yeah, you can say amen anytime. That's fine. It doesn't offend me or anything. I'm just kidding. Um, so that's good news, and it's also a little bit sobering news for us because that means that when we sin, as believers, if you're not a believer, then you're a slave to sin, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But as believers, when you sin, you chose to. When I sin, it's because I let that have power over me in that moment. Sin has no power over me. I'm not a slave to sin anymore. I'm a slave to righteousness. I'm a slave to God. But sin steps in, right? It steps in, and, and, and we're still tempted as believers. And the moment that we sin is the moment that we said, no, I'm going to go back and go my way, right? I'm going to let that reign over me in this moment. But the good news is that we don't have to do that anymore because we are in Christ, because we have, he has conquered sin and death for us, and, and, and he's done so by providing us with eternal, abundant life. What that means is that we have victory over sin. We're not a slave to it anymore. Again, I think we went around and around on this this morning in life groups. Romans 6, if you need to like understand that a little better, just, just put a bulletin in Romans 6 this morning. Because Romans 6, Paul lays out for us why you don't have to sin anymore. I'm not saying nobody in here is ever going to sin again. I'm, that's not my point. My point is that you don't have to because Christ freed you from it. And that's the good news of the gospel is that you're free from that. So Paul is saying, you're dead. You died. Now, you didn't stay dead, right? Because we rise with Christ. 
But he said, you died to that. And this reminds me of this day, about a year ago, I guess, uh, I was sitting in Papo's Pizza, and uh, several of us, and my, my two-year-old daughter at the time was sitting there, and I guess there was a football game on, on, the, on the TV screen. I wasn't watching it, but, but she was. And I guess oh, there's a TV on, right? So the kid all automatically like, just hooked, zoomed in on the TV. And uh, there was a receiver or running back or something that just gets clobbered, right? He just gets, gets tackled, laid out. And, uh, and I wasn't watching, but I just hear her announce, he dead. <laughs> and I <laughs> looked around, know what she was talking about and look up and the replay is playing on the, on the screen and, and uh, I thought, that was just a really good, I don't know where she got that. Maybe she's been watching me deal with raccoons a little too much or something. But um, she, uh, she put it really well. Uh, he wasn't dead, actually. He got up and, and went to the next play, I think. But um, I just, I think of that when I think about the fact that we are dead. We're dead. We're dead, We're dead with Christ to the power of sin. And now we are alive in the abundant eternal life that God offers to us. So this means we died to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, the things that Paul lists off here in Colossians. Evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, hatefulness, evil speaking about others, inappropriate talk and jokes, lying. These things have nothing to do with our life in Christ. Because we died with Christ and we now live with him, those things have nothing to do with us anymore. They are these little bits, these little vestiges. Paul calls it uh, what is earthly. These things that still remain around, and he says you put those to death every time you find them. Every time you find them, you destroy them. Secondly, we come to the warning here. Colossians 3.6. We had the command, right? the instruction. Now we have the warning. In verse 6, Paul writes, on account of these, the things that he just listed off there and things I just listed off, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul says, listen, God takes this stuff really seriously. And I think that we don't like to think about God's wrath culturally. Like I was saying a little earlier, I I think, I don't know if it's something about our culture and like, like niceness is kind of the virtue of the day or something, which it's, it's nice to be nice, but that's not enough, right? And, and, and for God, um, when sometimes I think that can actually be one of the most challenging parts to explain about the gospel in our culture. Maybe this is just me, but I think this is true, is God's wrath against sin, right? Because it's easy to go, oh, yeah, God, you know, make your life good, right? Which is true, right? Redemption, God's way, makes your life good. It doesn't make you rich and healthy and all these things, but it's the way to live life. Um, But the challenge is to explain you're broken, you're sinful, and God's wrath against that is not good news for you. That's hard to explain, and I think in our culture specifically, um, for a lot of reasons, I think that's a challenge. And what we have to understand, and, and what we, I think we have to help people understand, is um, God's wrath is right. It's justified. Because everything that exists 
owes itself to God. Everything that exists owes its entire being to him. So we owe our lives to him. It's not like you gave God some special gift when you gave your life over to him, right? Like, oh, thank you. I didn't deserve that, right? That's not how that works. You owed it to him. And he made a way for you to be freed from your sin and to make him your Lord, but to to actually follow him into abundant eternal life. And so God's wrath against sin is his righteous, his right response to the brokenness that we see in our world that we practice every day. You know what? I think actually our culture could understand this. I think it just doesn't want to. I think... um, There are various bad guys throughout human history that it's really easy to hate, right? Now, you know, no point listing names. You can think of whatever, right? Guys who murdered millions of people or all these things. Easy to hate those guys, right? And I think it would be difficult to find anyone in our culture that wouldn't say death penalty for that one, right? I think almost universally people would agree with that kind of thing. But what we do is we compare ourselves to to a Hitler or something, right? And, and at least culturally, and we think we're, we're not so bad. And maybe this isn't American culture. I think this is just a human tendency. And we go, I don't deserve God's wrath. I mean, that guy does, right? Because he's bad news. But I don't deserve God's wrath. And the reality is we do. I mean, maybe you haven't murdered millions of people. I don't think anyone actually in here has, but the reality is your rebellion against God deserves the same penalty, right? It deserves the same penalty because you owe God all of your life and existence and obedience and you didn't render it to him. You didn't give it to him. And so Paul says, listen, God's wrath is serious business. God takes sin really seriously. So we'll look to the Israelites again for an example. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse uh, 19 and 20, or you can just listen, either way. God says, And if you forget the Lord your God, and go after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. I remember when I read this verse recently, I don't know if it was the first time, but it was the first time in a long time, and I was like, whoa, that is heavy. God just said to the people he loves, the people he extended his promise to, that if they rebel the way these nations have rebelled, It's not going to go well for them. In fact, they're going to suffer the same fate as the nations that they're about to drive out and destroy. Because God's wrath against sin is serious business. Do you want to know what happens? Maybe you do already. They don't do well. I'll just put it that way. In Judges, we see... Moses issued this warning in Deuteronomy. He said, drive them out. Or, I mean, don't, don't just drive them out. Just don't make treaties with them. You wipe them out. You destroy them. Don't give your sons and daughters to them in marriage. Don't intermingle with them. Destroy them because they will pollute you. And we look over in Judges, 
chapter 1, verse 27. In the beginning of chapter 1, Joshua dies. Joshua was leading the Israelites after Moses. Joshua's dead now, and uh, the Israelites have some various judges that rise up throughout the book of Judges that kind of lead them into battle. But the beginning, it, it does actually explain that they drove, or they destroyed some of, the, some of these people groups. So they go into the promised land, and they, and they wipe out this group, and they wipe out this group, and they wipe out this group. And then we get to verse 27, and it says, Manasseh, which is one of the tribes of Israel, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bet-Sheon and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites into forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Moses warned them about this. He said, don't do that. And here we go. We find them doing it. And if you look into chapter 2, verse 11, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. What a, what a tragic story. Before long, the Israelites are serving other gods, right? And God keeps his promise to them, right? Continually, God says, okay, destruction's coming your way. And they end up in, in slavery, paying tribute to nation after nation again and again as they continue to rebel against God and, because initially they never destroyed these people that God told them to get rid of, to put to death this evil among them. They just kind of coexisted with it, lived among it. I've been reading through the Old Testament in my morning Bible readings, and uh, what's great is that when you hit Joshua, even before some, but when you hit Joshua, it's just some really engaging storytelling for book after book after book through Judges and uh, Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and, and these. It's storytelling, but here's the theme that emerges, among several other themes, but here's the theme that emerges in these stories, is that God says he calls somebody to serve him, to serve his people, right? To lead his people and to serve him and to obey him. And often that person does serve him for a little while. Not always, but often that person will obey and will serve him in some way. But what happens time and time again and again is that at some point that person turns their heart away from him. In fact, this happens without fail to every person that God calls to himself except for just a few, Elijah, uh, David. In fact, of the kings of Israel, David stands almost alone. God explains later, David, he says he's the only one except for the incident with Bathsheba. God actually says that. He's the only one who stayed faithful and devoted to me. In fact, we see the story of a prophet in the book of 1 Kings. I believe it's 1 Kings. Um, There's a prophet who God says, hey, you need to go deliver some news to one of the kings of Israel. And it's bad news because that's mostly what the prophets delivered in these books because the kings were rebelling against God. And so the prophet goes, and God tells the prophet, he says, don't stop along the way. Don't eat anywhere. Don't drink anywhere. You go deliver the news and then you go home. 
God gives him that command. In fact, the prophet explains that to someone else, that God told me to do this. So the prophet uh, goes and gives the king the bad news, and the king is, of course, not happy about that. And, and don't fault me for getting a couple of the details of this story wrong. I'm kind of summarizing here. But he gives the king the news, and then the prophet leaves. And uh, on the road on the way home is sort of pulled aside by someone else. And they say, come, come have dinner with me. Uh, the Lord told me to, 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 to tell you to come have dinner with me. And he says, no, 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 no I can't do that. And he pleads with him. This, this, this man says, come on, come have dinner. You know, God told me you should have dinner with me. And the prophet says, okay. And uh, the moment the prophet has dinner and then, and then leaves that house, he is killed by a lion in the road. What a strange story, right? What an, what an amazing bizarre kind of story in the middle of this this prophet he just did what god told him to do he just obeyed god and took the message to the king but he disobeyed god in this key area and god said that's it you're done it's just this picture of how god's wrath against sin is righteous and serious and over and over and over we see this cycle in the old testament of rebellion against god and of the punishment. And probably the best or worst example is King Solomon. King Solomon had it all, right? He's David's son. He inherits the kingdom. David was this warrior poet king, and he conquers all these, all these surrounding areas, and he makes them part of the kingdom of Israel. And his, you know, in, in his, almost his dying breath, he leaves the kingdom to Solomon. And Solomon pleases God. God says to Solomon, um, ask for anything and I'll give it to you. And Solomon says, give me wisdom because I don't know how to rule your people. And God is so pleased with that that he gives Solomon wisdom and he says, I'm going to give you wealth and a kingdom um, and carry on your line. Right? God blesses him immensely by this. Solomon rules over an unprecedented kingdom in the history of Israel. The wealth that Solomon had was almost unimaginable. He was just brought truckloads of gold in tribute by people. He builds an enormous house of the Lord. He loved God. He obeyed God. But he did this thing that sort of messed everything up, and that was taking a thousand wives. Just a little small thing. Um, Give or take a few hundred. Uh, Takes a thousand wives, and he takes them from the surrounding nations that worship God idols and the exact thing that Moses warned the Israelites against happens. Moses told them don't give, don't take their daughters as your wives, don't give your sons as their husbands, don't do it. And sure enough, Solomon, the one who wrote Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, this unbelievably wise devoted king, at the end of his life, the Bible tells us ends up turning his heart away from the Lord. His, his heart is turned towards idols because of all these people that he's brought in, into his household that their hearts aren't turned towards the Lord. Their hearts are turned towards worshiping idols. So the same thing happens with Solomon. And what God says is because Solomon did that, he's ripping the kingdom away from Solomon. He's so angry with Solomon for this because of Solomon's rebellion ultimately against God that he takes almost the entire kingdom of Israel away from Solomon. He says, listen, because David, your father, loved me, I'm going to leave you Judah. I'm going to leave you a sliver. I'm taking the rest of it away from you and your family. So Solomon's son, Rehoboam, loses almost all of the kingdom. 
And history, uh, Israel, throughout Israel's history, is, is never the same after that. They never have the high point that they did with Solomon. And it's due, in large part, to Solomon's rebellion against God because he brought these people groups in that God said, don't associate with them. They will pollute you. They will pollute you. When we don't put to death what is earthly in us, we're doing the same thing that Solomon did. We're doing the same thing that the Israelites did. We are inviting a raccoon into the hen house. When we don't put to death what is earthly, we are letting the enemy dwell among us. We are giving safe haven to the enemy. Now, I think about the Israelites and why they didn't drive these people out. And I can think of, I don't know the reason, um, but I can think of maybe a few reasons. I think one might have been just because it was uncomfortable. The Bible tells us that they did destroy a certain group of people in the promised land, and uh, and they occupied that land, and God said, this land is going to be great, by the way, because you're going to harvest from vines that you didn't plant. You're going to reap what others have sown. This is going to be good for you. And so they go in, and they get a little taste of it. And then I think probably, in part, what happens is they just don't want to suit up for another battle. It's hard. It's a lot of work to go to battle. Even if you know God is fighting for you and you know the end of the battle, it's just work to do these things, to to destroy the evil among us is work. And so I think that they, uh, I think that they just get a little bit lazy, honestly. I think also what happens is, is that they see how far they've come and I think they probably look around and go, this is probably good enough. Because I can imagine that because I think that we do that in our hearts too. I think that sometimes we go, you know, God's done a lot in me. And he has, right? God works in our lives to change us and mold us into the image of Christ. But sometimes we bump up against something and we have a decision to make about whether we're going to fight that battle and and destroy what is earthly within us or we're going to go, I'm doing pretty well already. I think I could take a break from this pursuit of holiness I don't need to drive this thing out now. You know, in fact, maybe I can make this work for me in some kind of way, right? The Canaanites are put into forced labor for the Israelites. So this sense of like, well, it's not like it's going to be in control of me. I've got it under control, right? I've got this sin issue in my life. It, yeah, it springs up from time to time, but I have it under control. It's all right. I don't need to take drastic action to destroy this remainder of what is earthly within me. I have it under control. And what happens? The same things that happen with the Israelites. It pollutes us from the inside, right? It begins to undermine the good work that God is doing in our lives. And I think ultimately it was just inconvenient for them. It goes back to the comfort point, right? I think it was inconvenient to work to drive out or to destroy these evil peoples that were before them when they could sort of sit back and, uh, and rest with what they had so far. And I think this is the same way it is for us, right? The pursuit of holiness is not a convenient pursuit. 
Uh, because as, as Paul tells Timothy, it's discipline, right? Discipline for the purpose of godliness. So this isn't something that's convenient, and I think that we fall into some of the same traps that the Israelites did. We don't destroy the vestiges, the little bits that hang on of what is earthly and what is evil, because sometimes it's hard. It requires doing hard things. But the reality is when we don't put that to death, we are doing what the Israelites did. We're keeping the destructive pet around. And it's our own fault when it wreaks havoc on what God is doing in our lives. There's good news, though, as always. Colossians 3, 11 through 17. This is what's great about being a Christian, by the way. Um, sometimes I think, in part, maybe this might even be our fault, but I think that, we, um, that Christianity gets characterized incorrectly as being a bunch of don'ts, a bunch of rules. Um, don't do this, put this to death, don't do this, don't do this. And that's the death part, right? That's the, the we've died with Christ. Those are the, these are the things that you don't do. Why don't you do them? Because you're free from them now, right? But what it gets painted as is just this list of don'ts without the resurrection piece, right? Without the, here's what your life looks like now, and it's way better, way better than before. Colossians 3, Paul gives us some handles for this, some ways to understand this in, in, in how we act, how we treat one another. 11 through 17, Colossians 3. He says, Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on them as God's chosen ones, right? So he's told us to put to death these things. Now he, now he says, okay, but here, you can't, you can't leave a void there, right? You put these things to death. Here's what you fill yourself with. Here's what you put on. So we have to listen carefully here. Put on then, God's chose, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As Christians, we don't just put things to death. It's not this list of don't do these things. Paul says, put on this over here, this abundant life God has offered you here. Put these things on. That takes action too, right? Putting to death takes action, and then clothing ourselves with something takes action, with what Christ offers us. This takes doing. God helps us with it, right? But it takes us taking action here. He says, put to death, put off sexual immorality. Put on compassion and humility. Can you see how those things are, in a way, opposites of each other? 
Sometimes we think the opposite of sexual immorality is sexual morality, which it is in a way, but the opposite of um, lust is not not lusting. The opposite of lust is compassion. The opposite of, 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 of seeing a person and desiring what God has said no to is seeing a person and praying for that person. What if God could change our hearts to be that way? That instead of desiring what he said no to, that instead our hearts are so changed that the moment that we're tempted with that desire, we instead turn to him and we pray and we lift that person up to him. God wants to do that in our lives and in our hearts. God says, put off anger and wrath. Put these things away. Destroy the vestiges of these things in your life, anger and wrath. Anybody else ever get tempted to be really angry about something and afterwards you don't know why? This is me sometimes. You look back and you go, that was stupid. What, was, what is my problem? I know the answer to that question, right? I need Jesus and I need to kill that in my life. And so God gives us the opportunity to put off anger and wrath, but to put on, to put on kindness patience. That's hard. To put on forgiveness for those who wrong us instead of letting anger well up inside of us when we've been wronged, when injustice has been committed against us. What if, what if we actually choose to forgive that person? What if we actually choose to pray for that person who wronged us? I can tell you in my life, in my work, in different areas that People wrong me. I don't think I'm alone in this, right? I think some of you have been wronged at some point, right? Um, God says, don't. Put, a, put away wrath towards that person and anger. Put on forgiveness, kindness. Choose that way. Pray for that person. And don't just pray for them. Be kind to them, right? Like step into kindness towards that person. Serve that person. He says, put off evil talk coarse joking, inappropriate speech, these things that, that are, have nothing to do with who we are in Christ, but put on thankfulness. Because this is, this is, we should be known for this as Christians. We should be known as being people who are thankful in all things. He says, put on thankfulness. Let the word of Christ dwell among you. Sing his words to each other, which is what we've been doing this morning. Sing his words to each other. Remind one another of the things that are true that sometimes we forget, right? Because we get surrounded with circumstances or temptation comes our way and we forget that we're free from sin. Remind, come alongside one another and speak truth to one another. Encourage and love and build up. So I'm going to end with a question. And the question is, where does God find you in all this today? Maybe where you are is that you are under the wrath of God today. And maybe I'm the first, or maybe not, but I want to tell you that you don't have to be under God's wrath anymore. And that is really good news. God's wrath against sin is real and just, but you don't have to be under it because Christ provides a way out. Jesus died for your sins. He rose again to free you from that sin. And now God invites you to join him in eternal abundant life. Not join him in, 
in meaningless religious practice, to join him in daily walking and knowing him, walking alongside him. That means repenting. It means turning away from sin and self. It means going God's way, not my way. Repenting means I was going this direction and I go exactly the other direction. I was going east and now I go west, right? It means turning around and going exactly the opposite direction. Because the reality is when we govern our own lives, we run it off a cliff every time. And God is calling you to repent. So I want to encourage you, if that's where you are, you're under the wrath of God. Don't leave today without, without doing something about that, without repenting and making him your Lord, without speaking to someone here about it. Don't leave today without doing that. But maybe, maybe that's not you, and maybe you're a believer. Many of us, I think, in here are. But there's a sin that you've given safe haven to, a raccoon that you let live in the hen house. God told you to drive it out, to take no prisoners, to absolutely, utterly destroy that thing. But you let this one stick around. Maybe for one of the reasons we talked about earlier. And as a result, it's polluting your relationships. It's polluting the relationship between you and God, and it's polluting the relationships that you have with people around you. It's undermining what God's doing and what God wants to do in your life. In reality, this is all of us, right? We all, as we, as we walk with the Lord, he shows us new areas. David says, show me my hidden faults, right? Forgive me of my hidden faults. God shows us new areas, and we have the choice in that moment to put to death what is earthly. My challenge to you this morning is to let God speak to you, not only convict you of that, of that thing that you need to put to death, but to do the hard thing that you need to do to, to put it to death, not to go, oh yeah, that is a problem. And then just kind of move on. Put it to death. Give it no quarter. Give it the final penalty after which it has, it, it, it's eradicated, right? And that's not to say you're not going to have to do this day by day. But the point is, you don't harbor it. Don't keep it around. God's calling us to do hard things as he calls us into abundant eternal life with him. But they are so worth it because the life he extends to us is infinitely better than the death and destruction that we leave behind when we follow him. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for this time together this morning. Thank you for the chance to hear from you in your word. I ask now, um, in spite of me and all the things that distract us, that you would let your word be driven deeply into our hearts. Let us take the difficult actions that we need to take to drive out and destroy sin. That your name would be glorified. Through Jesus' name we pray. Amen.